Hey folks, and welcome to yet another episode of the Wildlife for You podcast. I am your host, Daryl Radijak, and I'm joined here by, by my good friend and partner in all things wild, or let me rephrase that and say all things wildlife before she kicks me in the shin, my good friend, Stephanie Payne. And uh, I guess given our age, you can say those all things wild days are pretty much behind us. Um, yeah, I would think so. Man, why do we got to grow old so quickly? Well, buddy, speak for yourself. I mean, a better question may be, why do you have to be so old, you know, compared to me? (laughs) And why do you always have to remind me of that? (laughs) Not to dodge the question like a pro, but we seem to be asking a lot of why questions. Well, that's pretty good because tonight's topic is going to be just about that. It's it's what? Wait, wait, what? That you're way older than me? No, no, no. It's it's the whys that we are going to focus on, not the what's. So tonight we're going to talk about some of the most common questions we as wildlife biologists may receive from the general public. And especially if it's an issue where we're dealing with an animal that has more or less gotten into some trouble. You know, those those stories that sometimes take front and center of the evening news Oh, so you must be talking about those instances where an animal has captured the spotlight and then the ensuing questions are always, why can't that animal be released? Why can't the animal be relocated? Or why can't that animal be put into a zoo? Exactly, those questions. And so the, those they're all typical questions about the welfare of the animal. And truth be told, Steph, as a sentient, caring society – They're pretty logical questions, and I know we started out making light of tonight's episode, but this really is a deep topic. I I agree that it's one of our tougher and more heartfelt topics, but I'm I'm not so sure it's really deep. And what I mean by that is from science and judicial standpoints, there's sound logical reasoning behind the decisions that are made. So where these situations become controversial is when we discuss the ethics behind deciding an animal's fate. So, so let's see if we can try to tease apart that topic a little bit. Okay. So where should we start? Okay. Um, well, let's, let's talk about relocation first and the duress that an animal endures when it's relocated, say an animal, um, and we'll use a bear as an example. Let's say they find themselves in a sticky situation. Uh, so you're talking like the, the gooey molasses or maybe even those sticky honey buns. Yeah. Those can get really sticky. No, D. I am talking about a bear that's fast becoming food conditioned. You know, he may be eating those those ooey gooey honey buns, but sticky paws is the least of his problems. Um, let's just say that he's become so accustomed to dining on man-made foods that he's resorted to breaking into cars and garages looking for food. Gotcha now. Um, just so you know, this is this is often a very common problem, especially in those tourist towns where Visitors go up into the mountains and kind of get in those more natural places. The bad thing is they're not always the best at securing their food. Okay, so tell me, if you were the local wildlife biologist or wildlife officer, what would you do with that bear? And say this is a, you know, the third or house, uh, third car or third house that that bear's broken into. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, first off, I know we're going to have to do something with him. 
Because truth be told, Steph, with him breaking into cars or even houses, that could very well be a dangerous situation. Okay, well, let me ask you this. What do you think the general public is going to want you to do with that bear? That's a no-brainer. Literally, in every situation, they're going to want me to relocate it. And is that a logical response? Well, if it was the bear's first offense, it very well might be. But knowing what you told me where it's his third or fourth offense, uh, it's probably not a very practical response. Okay, so why is that? Well, I feel like I'm speaking to the choir, but you know as well as I that it's a pretty much lose, lose, lose situation that you create. Now, first and foremost, it's not going to help me out as the wildlife biologist or wildlife officer, because if I relocate that animal, there's a really strong chance that bear will eventually make its way back to the exact same location. So I really haven't solved that problem. So it doesn't help me. Secondly, it's not a very good societal solution. And the reason being, you are not addressing the problem. The bear in this situation is not the problem. The people that make that food source available to the bear, they are the problem. And so you remember that old adage about uh, you should treat the disease and not the symptom? That relocation of that bear is literally treating the symptom. You're not getting to the core root of the problem. And thirdly, with a lose, lose, lose situation, and this is probably the most important aspect, is it's bad news for the bear. Those bears that are relocated and taken far away from home, they typically don't fare well. So imagine being plucked from your home and then being plopped down in an area that is completely foreign to you. And so you know what your house, you know in your own house where to find food, where you could go to the bathroom, where you can find a mate, hopefully in the bedroom. Uh, All those things are known to you. But when you are removed from that familiar landscape and you're plopped down in the middle of nowhere, you don't know where to go to find food or water. And literally every one you run into, every other bear that that relocated bear runs into is literally going to want to beat the crap out of them. Oh my gosh. That sounds like a a few reality show plot lines that, that I've seen, but okay, well let's, let's move on now to captivity. You know, we hear questions all the time asking why bad bears, again, for example, can't just be, you know, shipped to a zoo or kept indefinitely in captivity. And I do want to add a bit of a disclaimer here that this isn't, about short-term captivity. I've heard people ask why a bear can't be in captivity while waiting on something like a DNA test. The thing is there is that most agencies, they don't have any facilities to hold a bear for any length of time, like at all, zero. And they, they can't exactly keep a bear for 10 days or two weeks in a culvert trap or something. And if they tried, it's just gonna be an absolutely terrible experience for all involved, especially the bear. So. When I ask you this, let's talk about what happens to a bear when they're taken from the wild and put into a long-term or permanent type of captivity. Okay, another good question. But let's, let's make everything clear right first and foremost and start with the fact that that action of plucking an animal out of the wild and putting it in a zoo, that action is illegal in most states. 
And so oftentimes all the individual states, there are statutes and there are laws in place that literally make it illegal to take a native animal out of the wild and place it in captivity. And I'm familiar with Tennessee and a lot of the, the southeastern states. And the reason they have those laws in place is to protect our native wildlife from exploitation. If those laws were not there, then the average Joe Schmo could say, oh, I want to have a pet such and such and simply capture one out of the wild. And that would lead to over exploitation. So having said all that, typically laws are written in such a way, and I don't want to say they're a loophole, but they will give exceptions to the rule. So in extreme circumstances, uh, say, for example, the director of a state wildlife agency, he does have the authority to a grant permission to take, for example, in our example here, a bear. And in certain situations, he can grant that authority where he can give that bear to a zoo or a sanctuary. Obviously, knowing how governments work, these are extremely, extremely rare cases because these high-ranking officials, they really don't want to to get their, their, their fingers into too much of, of the sticky stuff. And so they kind of stay out of those situations. Okay. So let's, let's get beyond all that and say that there is an instance where an animal is in the spotlight. Public outcry is just at an all-time high. And say the governor is willing to step in and say, all right, let's save this, this animal. It's not always as simple as placing a bear in a zoo and then everything's all honky-dory. Exactly. Um, and th- there's a couple of things that are running through my mind. One thing to mention first and foremost is oftentimes zoos don't have like vacancy signs plastered on their front. Oftentimes zoos don't have the ability to accept animals. Um But here's another thing that people don't understand is literally what that activity of of taking a bear out of the wild and putting it in a zoo, what it does to the bear or whatever wild animal that's that's taken from the wild. Now, sure, a zoo or a sanctuary may provide those basic necessities for that animal, but there is a ton of stress that that animal has to endure, and that can lead to an unhealthy and depressed or, or just extremely stressed animal. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's some obvious things like the animals being deprived of its natural habitat and social structures and even interactions. Yes, absolutely. And it goes without saying that captivity obviously means a decrease in space. And when you add all of those things together, you end up with a lot of physical and mental stress on that animal. So a lot of times we see like physical expressions of that stress and mental duress that the animal is under uh, pacing. If you see the animal pacing back and forth, that's a great ex- example. Uh, sometimes you'll even see situations of say a bear cub uh, doing self mutilation where they'll, they'll literally chew on their paw or sometimes they'll, they'll even, they'll even like start nibbling or suckling on, on one of its siblings ears. We, we had that situation happen one time. Um, anyway, neither, what I'm trying to say is th- there's this coping behavior that animals 
undergo in very stressful situations. And if that animal was originally from the wild, the confinement can really take a toll on it. And I don't like to make human and animal comparisons, but it's a lot like putting a person in a strict prison where they're confined all the time. You know, there's no mental stimulation that's allowed that lack or lack thereof the ability to exercise. There, there's some similarities there and you know how stressful that could be. And so these animals, they lose their ability to really function on the outside. And if they're kept in captivity for, for too long, it's probably inevitable that they could never be, be released. So anyway, add to it the harm they could do to themselves trying to escape the confinement, yada, yada, yada. Sometimes it's just not a really good situation for that animal to go into a zoo. Yeah. So let's break it down. Why, why even these short stints in captivity are, blah, blah, short stints in captivity are bad. So like you said, you know, we've, we've got injury because the animal may try to escape. We also have to think of the, the hormones that the animals likely having just pumped into their system because of all those related stressors. And it's those same hormones that serve a vital purpose in the wild, you know, like, like adrenaline and, and glucocorticoid that can have lots of physical effects on the heart, the muscles, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this hormone overexposure, it leads to stress, which leads to weight loss, changes in the immune system, changes to the reproductive systems, you know, those physical stress cues that you were, you were talking about. And a lot of people, it's weird. They just like to think, well, you know, eventually that animal's going to get used to it, but they don't. Yeah, exactly. And we call that chronic captivity stress. And the conditions of captivity, literally, they feel threatening to the animals. So they react just like you said. They have that increased adrenaline, other hormones and chemicals that typically would be beneficial in the wild. But in captivity, they actually work to bring that animal down. And so psychologically, physically, they they get depressed. And so there are some animals that have like more or less better adaptive potential to captivity, but others just don't. And on a side note, just to show you how stressful these situations can be. And I'm speaking from an experience here, Steph, simply handling a wild animal for a short period of time can cause a situation called capture myopathy. And literally what that is, is that's that animal is so stressed out from being captured uh, that its temperature is going to spike. Its internal organs will begin to shut down. And there's a really strong possibility that animal could, could die. Anyway, I kind of cringe whenever I see people talking about just wanting to give the bears or in your situation, the woodchucks a, a hug or a noogie and just love on them. Now, I, I understand that could be very therapeutic for you or for whatever other human that wants to do it, but it is absolutely pure torture for those animals. And here's a great example. Have you ever seen where like a rabbit or maybe a little squirrel or even birds, they'll, they'll lie still. They'll, they'll be perfectly motionless. And it's like they're really, really calm when you handle them. So many people think that is comforting for the animal, like just to love on them and care for them, when more often than not, it's literally because those animals are frozen in sheer panic. Think, think about the size of that animal 
and this monster giant thing is just <laughs> handling this animal. They're literally passing out from utter panic. Mm. And kudos to you on the woodchuck dig. You actually made me feel guilty for a second there. <laughs> but anyway, so that, that brings us to a final question. When we can't relocate an animal and we obviously can't park them in captivity or in a zoo and their, their offense means that we can't release them. So the final solution really is that sometimes an animal, it has to be put down. And it can be difficult to understand that why, the, the why regarding why we may have to put an animal down. Yeah, and this can be really touchy because so often I hear people say they hate when, for example, a bear is killed just for acting like a bear. For sure. And there's some instances where you and I, we say the same thing, but I want, I want to be, before we even start, I want to be super clear that there are times when absolutely nothing happens to the animal. It's just, you know, it's completely whatever happened. It's, it's ignored. It, it didn't really occur, I guess you could say, but even though it did, but anyway, some of that is based on which state the animal lives in. And of course, we also have to look at the nature of the offense, but in anything where it wasn't a clear and simple case of a natural behavior, usually the question and the answer ends up being about public safety. Uh, public safety you know and i i actually lecture on this exact topic during our wart training and as a reminder to our listeners that acronym stands for wildlife human attack response training um so i tell you what steph why don't you give us a, a quick overview of that i'm um, sure so you know what legal liability boils down to at the very core is a court's decision on if reasonable care was taken to avoid, in this case, you know, a severe or fatal animal attack to protect the public. Okay, I know you want to do this, so hit me up with some case studies. <laughs> yes, I do. So, all right, so let me start by clarifying what I meant as a natural behavior. As an example, if it's a clear case of a sow defending her cubs, for example, that's natural. And any case where there's consumption on a human, even if you can't tell that the bear is what caused that human's death, it is going to usually be deemed unnatural. But anyway, so in one case study, we have an area that starts seeing an increase in instances of mountain goats who are salt conditioned, which is a lot like food conditioning, but you know, it's, these guys are really driven for salt. So um, if you think about all the things hikers have that have salt in them, potato chips, sweat, pee, lots of things that these mountain goats are starting to pursue because they are salt conditioned. So this area, they place signs at all the trailheads to caution hikers about the salt conditioned behavior. But one goat, he earns a reputation with the agency that manages the area. And that history and reputation was discovered after the goat gored and killed a man. So while some, you know, reparations were still required, the court did rule that the signage actually provided an announcement on the increased goat activity and clearly indicated that hikers hike at their own risk. But, but let's talk about the animal. You know, there were a lot of initial looming questions because, like I said, this animal, he had a history. And a lot of people felt that that history of increasing bad behavior would lead to a potentially solid legal liability lawsuit because the goat posed an ever-increasing threat to public safety, and it did eventually kill someone. So what eventually was the outcome there? 
Okay, well, so immediately after the incident, when the responders arrived, um, the goat was actually guarding the man's body. So the goat, it was eventually dispatched at the scene. But because of the response time and some other initial factors, again, the court did rule in favor of some reparations, which I, I kind of briefly mentioned, but they ruled against the wrongful death lawsuit. Why? Because of that warning signage. But the looming question, though, is, you know, if this fatality could have been avoided, if that goat had been removed from the population at any point the whole time that he was building up this reputation. So um, just food for thought. But we, I have another example where, where we have a sow, a female grizzly with, uh, with cubs, and it was involved in a fatal attack on a hiker, but her actions were deemed as natural, defense of her cubs. So no actions were taken against her at all. But here's the rub. Two months later, that same bear was identified in another fatality, and the person on the second fatality was partially consumed, which led a lot of people to ponder if that initial decision to leave her be after that first fatality was the right decision. I'm very familiar with that case. So in that situation, what do you think? You know, I think it's a tough decision to ever put an animal down, especially, you know, a female grizzly, low population, and she's got such breeding potential. And I know so many people, they're against recourse on the animal because that animal's just being that animal. It's really, really easy to armchair quarterback those types of decisions when it's some nameless face, you know, person that you don't know. The fact is, though, we know that bear just as much as we know that guy. So, you know, it's no no more fair for us to side with automatically with the bear than it is for us to automatically side with the guy. It is easy for animal lovers like you and I and lots of other people to automatically side with the bear and always victimize the animal and, and say, you know, the poor animal. But that man, well, you know, he was someone's son, someone's husband, someone's father. And maybe the bear was just being a bear. But the fact is, our culture, we love holding others accountable. Relatives and friends, they want accountability for what they see as a death that didn't need to occur. So, again, it's easy to dismiss it when it's somebody that you don't know. But someone died potentially because an animal's earlier actions were dismissed. And if that person was someone that you know and love, you'd want those same answers on why prior behaviors were just seemingly ignored. But it's so complex, Daryl. You know, I could literally, I hate to say this, but I could literally sit here and fight both sides of this argument. So can I do one of my <laughs> tangents? Oh, my gosh. We all know what happens if I tried to stop <coughs> it the way. Carry on, sir. Well, thank you for the permission. But as you were just telling me all that, I was just having flashbacks to it was the first training that you and I worked together, the, the bear attack response training. And people simply do not know the gravity of that situation until they're in the middle of it. And here we were. You recall that first scenario we did where you, you were a play actor to help train these law enforcement folks. And the situation was where your young, young child was taken off a swing set. And you came into the scene to help train these, these officers for what to expect. And you, you screamed and you were crying, trying to find your baby. And the next thing I know, I look around 
And every wildlife officer there had tears streaming down their eyes. I've got tears streaming down my eyes. It is such an intense situation. And to to play armchair quarterback, like you mentioned, it's it's just the wrong thing to do. So anyway, you did an awesome job. Yeah, I Thanks. And I absolutely, because I, I wish everybody could, I, I wish the whole world could attend one of my training sessions because that immersive field scenario training it does so much more than sitting and watching pictures and listening to case studies and learning how to measure, you know, tooth diameters and stuff. It is, it is absolutely so phenomenal. And, and I'm glad that you brought it up because quite honestly, I, I'm sure I did my very best to shock and wow you guys, because I, I knew you, I knew every one of you. So it was harder for me to make you guys take it seriously than if you had any other field scenario actor there. Um, so I, I really had to, to try hard, but I'll, I'll tell you, when you really, really start to put people in that kind of a stressful situation, it changes the stakes. And I can't even fathom how minuscule those stakes feel if it was compared to the actual I real know. thing. I, so. I, I tell you, my heart was racing. My, my bottom lip was quivering. It was, it was such an intense situation. And that doesn't, like you said, it doesn't even scratch the surface of how, how dire these situations really can be. So Anyway, uh, regarding the legal liability, does that sum it up? You know, mostly, but, but I have a philosophical question. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's for you or for our listeners. I mean, because it, it's sort of rhetorical. Well, okay, stop hemming and hawing to spit it out. Okay, well, so just food for thought. If each of us as individuals had to make a decision based on, on what we all know right now, would we choose to relocate an animal where we know ahead of time it's really successful and the experience may be a long drawn out and painful end to their days, or they're just going to work themselves back into trouble and it's going to catch up to them anyway. Or we could pick captivity, which causes all of those mental and physical issues and so often leads to just the total breakdown of, of that animal um, or quickly and usually very humanely have that animal put down you know which which would they or we all which would we all as individuals personally choose if we knew that we had to be exposed to the outcome of our decision that we you know if we chose relocation that we had to be exposed to what that bear had to go through until it finally succumbed or if we put it in captivity if we had to be exposed to watching that bear's mental and physical health just start to crash and, you know, or if we had to sit there and watch that, I guess it's just, like I said, it's a rhetorical question for everybody, but I'm just curious if that makes people think about it differently. Does that, does that question even make any sense, Daryl? Absolutely. And as you were describing it, I was sitting here and thinking that would be pure torture knowing if you see an animal deteriorate or or I, I'll give you a, a, a quick experience from my life you, you all know the the story of Deacon where we rescued this bear that had pneumonia um, but it couldn't be released it, it, it was raised by humans could not be released and so we had to find a place for that bear to go and I invested so much energy so much emotion in in saving that animal and then we found a sanctuary and I tell you what, Steph, I, I don't like talking about it because 
here I am sitting here thinking to myself that animal is now because because of my actions it's confined to captivity it's no longer a wild animal and and people just they armchair quarterback things and make these decisions without seriously seriously thinking about it and i'll tell you right here right now that is not a good feeling knowing that i i I was responsible for um, helping this bear live a life in captivity and yeah it's just not a good thing so anyway um here's something for the listeners it's definitely something for the listeners to consider so anyway this was definitely a a deeper and more serious topic than others but it's it's a topic that really needs talking about for sure so before i forget let's hit some facebook questions elizabeth whom i love and adore because just for the record she also loves groundhogs and, and bill they asked a lot of questions, so let's let's tag team those. So, Daryl, how far do you have to relocate an animal when it's relocated? Uh, obviously, it will depend on the type of animal. And like I said, relocation is not a really – at first, before we knew much about what happens to those animals, we thought, oh, we'll just take it somewhere else and let it go. Um, but we've learned, like, if you move a he's getting into trouble. You capture him, you move him 10 miles outside of town. He'll be back the next day. And they've, they've done it over the yeah. uh, number of years where they would increasingly move a bear further and further. And they, they were taking bears 50 miles. I've got examples where they took a bear 200 miles away and he still eventually made it back home. So I, instead of telling you what a good relocation distance is, I just want to say relocation is not always a really good option. Yeah. And well, and it kind of answered her next question was, do they, they make their way back? So obviously you've answered that with the often yes, but we also have to caveat that if they don't, there's still a solid chance they're going to find the nearest town and, and continue on with their bad behavior because once they've learned it, they don't unlearn it. Exactly. But anyway, no, okay. well, let me get on to the next nope, question. Nope, nope, oh. nope, because I'm going to add on to that. And oftentimes oh. we say if, okay. if the bear was causing a problem at point A, we don't want to move him somewhere where he causes a problem at point B. And so, yeah, it's, it's not a simple situation. And, and the other thing that happens is when they're trying to get home, a lot of animals don't survive. They, they're, they're crossing roads. They're getting into foreign areas with more threats or unknown threats. And so it's, it's definitely not high on the list of things to do for survivability is, is do a long distance trek to try to get back home. Okay. Well, I will tell you, Elizabeth's next question was, are animals that are rehabilitated or relocated tracked after release to make sure they're thriving in their new environment? So let me, let me say first, we've already kind of hit this one because We've already really stressed how taking an animal and dropping it somewhere else is more often than not, not going to be a good answer for that animal because it's not going to be, it's not an easy to survive situation. So thriving in a new habitat is probably, you know, optimism to the point of, of maybe crossing a little bit of a line there, you know, Um, I don't know that thriving is really in at least any kind of a near future, but she did tack one piece onto that though because she said what about rehabilitated or relocated so let me ask you that as a rehabber former rehabber 
did you guys track rehabbed bears to see if they were thriving after you guys put them back into the wild? Yes. And in the beginning, like decades ago, when an animal was relocated, obviously they didn't, we didn't have a lot of tracking collars or the, the ability, the technology to track them. And so when you took an animal way back in the country and let it go and you never heard from it again, your automatic assumption was, oh, that animal is thriving, doing great. As technology advanced and they put collars on some of these relocated bears and we saw their response and oftentimes it was not a happy ending for those. And and so I, I agree with you. The, this idea of thriving in a new location is probably a little extreme. Could they survive in a new location? Yes, absolutely. But that leads to the the second part of that question about not just relocation, but rehabilitation. I will tell you one of the things that we always tried to do, and this is best for that animal, is once an animal is rehabilitated, if it was injured or orphaned, whenever it's nursed back to health, we try to put that animal in the same location it came from. That familiarity is really going to help them out. And that is one, one of the things that is going to help them thrive is being in an area that instinctually they, they know their, their mom uh, was raised there. They, maybe their mom taught them a few things before something bad happened to them. So anyway, we, you try to keep them in their, in their home territory if possible. Cool. So, all right. And her last question is um, when an animal's relocated, does its family realize that they're missing and search for them for any given amount of time? Or is this strictly a human behavior? I'll say, and then Daryl, I'll ask you for some commentary, but I, I'm going to say this is a mix of yes and no, but mostly on the no side. Um, are they going to realize somebody's missing potentially? Yeah, they're going to they're going to realize that they had three cubs and now they're down to two. Are they going to search for it for any given amount of time? I don't know that I have any kind of validation to be able to provide that answer. I can't tell you that I've read enough um, studies where we could empirically show that, but Daryl might have some in a minute. But I will say as far as the one thing that we have to realize here is this is a tricky question because animals do not have feelings that are as acute as a human's. So when there's a, a loss in that animal's immediate family, we'll say, they don't feel that nearly as acutely as what a human being like you and I, I would. So is it mostly a, a human behavior to the level of, of acuity that we're looking at in the question? I'm going to say yes, but now I'm going to pass the puck over and let Daryl pick it up on his stick and roll. You'll like my response because I'm just going to say, I agree with you, Steph. I, I think you said it. I think you said it perfectly. <laughs> I, we, we sometimes, give too many human traits to animals and animals live in the wild. It's a really tough life. And, you know, survival rates aren't always the highest and you just don't see animals always walking around mourning. So anyway, I, it's, it's a sad thing for us to think about. So let's, let's just say that it doesn't bother the animal as much, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. They might nudge, you know, I'm just not to, not to keep kicking you while you're down here, Daryl. But so if I, if, you know, I, I have seen, you know, a deer that, that has two fawns and maybe something happens to one fawn and I have seen a deer nudge the fawn, you know, Hey, get up time to roll, yep. but then they go. So it's, it's, it's not like what you and I do anyway, carrying on. So Lori asks us how people can affect these outcomes and that 
that is a seriously deep question. Yeah, I agree. And as you and I have said time and time again, people are the major effector between attractants, selfish behaviors, the like wanting to give woodchucks nuggies, um, even the litigious <laughs> culture that we live in, we affect the majority of this topic. Did you kick me with the woodchucks again? Because yes, I, I did I just kick right back at you. I'm like that, you know. <laughs> gotcha. I, yeah, I do. All right. So woodchucks aside, yes, that is a very valid point. You know, when it comes to bears and other wildlife that get into trouble, often humans have a heavy hand involved in why they're into trouble. Like Daryl said, it's attractants or it's a selfish behaviors or, or sometimes it's just absolute lack of, of observational skills um, when people are out and about in the environments where the animals are. But it's, it's the responsibility of each and every one of us to influence everyone that we can to be responsible when it comes to coexisting with wildlife. In addition to that, maybe we can use some of that influence to make some strides when it comes to us needing to point fingers for that blame thing. We, I mean, it's, it is the nature of Americans to look for somebody to blame when something goes awry. And it's that same nature that leads to those liability concerns, which again, usually are going to be all about that. That's why we're always erring on the side of public safety and, you know, being cautious for public safety. Again, it's easy for us to condemn others when, when these lawsuits come up and we think that's frivolous and stupid that bear was just being a bear, but it is a lot harder when it's you or someone, you know, and love, and you're the one looking for answers on why. So again, blame. Uh, but, you know, I, I actually, I could probably sit here and just blather on, um, but I, I really don't think that there's any easy answers for the question that Lori Agreed. asked. Agreed. All right, let's see the time. Oh, we're, we're nearing 40 minutes here, pal. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, but before I do, uh, can I give one more shout out? Shout right. sir. There, there's someone out there who she moderates the Bruno page. Her name is Dar Strobin. Um, I just want to say she's awesome. She's always commenting to me uh, about the podcast. She's always promoting the podcast and telling people on their Facebook page, which has 230,000 people following it. She's always saying, listen to, to Daryl and Stephanie's podcast. So it's pretty awesome. So huge shout out to Dar. We thank you so, so much. And I hope you're feeling better. I know you've been under the weather. So anyway, I am going to remind our listeners to subscribe to our podcast. So they get updates when we have new episodes. And of course you can always follow us on our webpage at wildlifeforyou.com. And that's all spelled out. I would say the better ways to keep track of us, though, is on Twitter, but primarily on Facebook. Just go to the Wildlife for You Facebook page and follow us, and you'll know about every podcast class. Neat little thing that's happening in the world of wildlife. So that's my uh, advertising pitch. So, Yeah, they'll probably also know about those videos yeah. you're always asking me if, if we watched or that if I watched it before yes, I they even will know. be more into so. it than you are. Yes. All right. And, and of course, we do want to remind everyone that when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge is their existence. Till next time, folks. <laughs>